Good evening. It's wonderful to see everyone here tonight. If you're visiting with us, we are so glad that you are a guest and you are very welcome. If you see someone sitting next to you that you don't know, introduce yourself. And that way, next time you're sitting next to them, you will know them and you can't say that anymore. And so let's be giving our guest a warm welcome tonight. If you're joining us online, we appreciate you being here as well. What a wonderful night tonight. Uh, next month, I'll mark my eight years of being an employee here and I've been going to church here for almost 23 years and I'm excited about again a wonderful thing in this congregation that new elders are going to be added to the shepherd uh, and the eldership of this congregation. I've seen that happen a few times. It's always been a blessing to me and I'm excited about the three men who have cared enough about the Lord's kingdom to step up and willing to accept that mantle of responsibility and I know they're going to serve well. What an exciting time. Uh, to be here. I look forward to being uh, working beside them as an employee. I hope they like that idea too for the time being. And, but I'm also looking forward to their work and their ministry and what they're going to bring to the table. If you're visiting with us tonight and you may not understand, well, why do you have so many elders? And uh, why don't you just have one person that is in charge of the church? And the reason is that that's not the example and the pattern we see in the scriptures, nor do we see it in the history of early Christianity that one person is in charge because that doesn't function. Everybody likes a dictatorship until the dictator's not any good. You know, and it doesn't work out just to have one person. And in the Lord's great wisdom, he's seen fit to say, we need several different men to lead a congregation because they all bring something different to the table and they all can be a blessing. They all have a talent. They all have a function in the body uh, as leaders. And I'm very excited about that. So I encourage you, uh, to stick around, don't do the reverse invitation when I offer the invitation here in a little while and, and leave early. Stick around uh, for that. I believe Griff is going to take care of that ceremony and very excited about that after our closing prayer. There is a typo. If you're one of the uh, adult uh, or nursery or children's teachers that serves in that ministry with Lauren and myself, uh, the date in the bulletin is incorrect. It is not October 13th. We tried to have a dinner and get you to skip church to come to a dinner, but the elders kind of frowned on that a little bit. So we're going to actually do that on the 15th, uh, Tuesday night at Iris Woods Venue. We'll correct that in upcoming announcements. But we appreciate that work that you do. It's a lot of work to get prepared to teach class and appreciate that. Also, uh, it's not in the bulletin, but if you are an adult Sunday morning youth teacher, Sunday morning, uh, you're also invited to that dinner. The cocoon leaders are going to have something separate uh, in talking with Philip about that. So very exciting time. If you want to be turning your Bible to the 119th Psalm, uh, if you don't know where that is, flop your Bible about to the middle uh, and you'll be very close uh, to that. Tonight, obviously, don't panic. I'm not going to go over that entire Psalm. It's very lengthy uh, in looking at it. But we're going to look at the first verses of each of the stanzas uh, of that Psalm and explain why. Uh, but tonight's lesson is going to be a pretty simple one about our duty and our obligation. If we're going to call ourselves disciples, of the Lord, which is our ongoing focus on Sunday mornings. And if you're not part of that, I ask you to consider coming to a Bible class because the only reason not to come to a Bible class at this congregation on Sunday morning is that you don't want to study the Bible. There's no other way around that. If you don't want to come to that, then you don't want to study the Bible. And I'm kind of speaking to a group of people here who likely all come to Bible class because uh, there's, there's about the same number of people that come on Wednesday night and Sunday night and attend Bible class. It's interesting how those numbers are very balanced. So really wish I probably could have said that on Sunday morning. Uh, but I encourage you to come and be a part of that study as we're studying about being disciples of Christ. And so we're going to look at the 119th Psalm. Then we're going to turn over to the book of Hebrews 
uh, to close out our thoughts tonight, but the Jews before Christianity came along and Christianity after them had an, an odd nickname amongst the religious environment of the ancient world, of the Greco-Roman world, because they were known as a people of the book. And even today, the Islamic religion would refer to Jews and the Christians as the people of the book. And you think, well, that's not very strange because those views have been associated uh, with Christianity or at least a Judeo-Christian environment here in the United States. So, well, of course, our religion has a book. Don't, don't all religions have books? Well, no. The answer to that is no. And especially in the environment that Jesus and his disciples, the time of the New Testament, it would have been very unusual for you to have a book that your entire religion revolved around that you looked at it for everything, for all the answers. Remember how the Bereans, as soon as they heard the word, the gospel, they turned to the scriptures to see if those things were true. They relied on it for everything. The, the religious establishment in Jerusalem hung their hat on the law of Moses. Jesus summed it up and others did. The law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, their entire life religiously and their beliefs revolved around what was contained in what we would refer to today as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And for many decades in the early church, what we call the Old Testament is the only Bible the early church had. It is some time before you would get an assembled codex or book that would have the New Testament writings in them. Uh, those writings may have been circulated some, they may have been copied, they may have been moved around from church to church, but to say you could lay your hands on what we might call a modern day book containing the 27 books of the, of the Hebrew, of the New Testament, excuse me, would be a, a long time before that would happen. But we are a people of the book as well. And if you call yourself a disciple of Christ and you're not a person of the book, of the Bible, you're not a student of God's word. And student does not mean expert. Student is just someone who studies something. If you don't do that, it's very difficult for me to understand how you can call yourself a disciple of Christ. If we don't want to read the teachings of our teacher, how can we be his disciple? How can we be his pupil? How can we discipline ourselves to be a people of the Lord? If somebody ever asked me what's the most important thing I can do as a Christian to grow and to be edified and to know the will of God, the first thing I will always tell them is to read his word. That, that takes pressure over anything because we cannot know, just, just as I just spoke, we would not know the pattern for an eldership in the Lord's church following God's pattern, not, not mankind's religious pattern, but God's pattern, if we did not have his word. We would not know that that's the will of God if we didn't see in the biblical narrative of Acts the, the elders serving in the church, if we didn't have the letter of uh, 1 Timothy uh, to Paul's beloved son in the faith, Timothy, or to Titus on the island of Crete about elders, we would not know the qualifications for those men or that there's supposed to be a plurality of them. We wouldn't have Peter uh, calling himself a fellow shepherd and, and looking up to the chief shepherd. We wouldn't know the things that we're supposed to do. We wouldn't know to even assemble together on the first day of the week if we didn't have the record of the Lord's word to tell us that. But it's a mistake for us to look at the scriptures as simply a code of laws. It is so much more than that. The Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, that word does not mean law. That word means teaching 
or instruction because not only do we learn about the ethics and morality of how we should treat each other and our fellow man from the law codes, but we also learn about man's relationship with God and the beautiful narrative that we have there. The example of God's people. When the Hebrew writer wanted to go give an example of faith, he went to the narratives of the Old Testament to talk about how those men and women had faith in God and they acted and they demonstrated upon that faith. We wouldn't know those things. You cannot understand God. There's nothing you can even fathom in theology if you do not read his scriptures. And it has always been important to be a people of the book, whatever covenant you lived under. And we live in a time now unprecedented in human history to have access to the word of God. It's right there on your tablets, on your phones. I have got 30 Bibles. I don't have my phone on me. I've got 30 Bibles, probably over 150 commentaries and two dozen dictionaries and other lexicons and things on my telephone that I can carry around with me. I can read the Bible in its original languages just by picking up my phone or my tablet or my computer and everyone has access to it in, in paper form in your own language. You know, they used to burn people to the stake for putting the Bible into English. They dug one man's bones up and threw him in the river because he translated the Bible into the language of the common person. You have a blessing of access to a lot of garbage out there about the Bible, but also a lot of wisdom, a lot of stuff out there about it that you can learn from. You live in a time unprecedented. And if you wanted to study the Bible and study it uh, in depth, a great many of our forerunners in Christianity did not have that blessing. You should be thankful for that. We really have no excuse not to be a people of the book and to study God's word. It's always been important. We'll see that the psalmist that wrote the 119th Psalm, and I invite you to read it. We're not going to obviously read it all tonight, but I want you to all to go back and read that and see how many times references to the word of God, his ordinances, his statutes, his rules, his laws, everything that the psalmist knew he needed to know and the people that he was writing to needed to know were contained within the word of God. What a treasure, how easily it can be lost. I talk about how, what a blessing it is that we have it so accessible to us. Think about those of you that know the story of King Josiah. We, we, we tend to think about everything being in the same culture and society. That every, well, Everybody in Israel had a Bible on their bedstand. No, they absolutely did not. In the time of Josiah, because of the times of the evil kings before, in between good King Hezekiah and, and Josiah, there's two evil kings. The word of God had been shoved into a corner of the temple and had to be dusted up and dug out. And Josiah was brought. He's like, oh, no, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Even though the law had said in Deuteronomy, every king is to write for himself a copy of the law. That's how important God's word was to leadership is that every king was required. God said, I don't want you to have a king, but I'm going to predict this way before the times that you want a king, that you're going to have a king. And when you have a king, he needs to write a copy of the law for himself in doing it. And that's a big deal. I don't know if you've ever sat down and thought about copying down the entirety of the first five books of the Old Testament. That's a big job to do. But how quickly it had been shoved back into a corner of the temple and it was discovered then. It's not something that was accessible to everyone. It's something even in the Christ time in the first century that was relegated to synagogues and places where those scrolls uh, would have been kept. It, it, it's a testimony to the wealth of the Ethiopian eunuch and prosperity that he had a scroll of Isaiah. Most of you probably wouldn't want to carry around a scroll of Isaiah. 
uh, in your hands. And so it's very important. It's always been important to God's people, and it's important to God's people in the New Testament age as well. In Psalm 119, we have what is an acrostic. And an acrostic in the Psalms happens pretty frequently, but each of the eight, there's several, 22 sections to this Psalm. Each one of the sections of eight verses, all of the verses begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. There are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. Those vowels that we pronounce got added later uh, with markings. But each of these sections of eight verses and in many of your Bibles will have a, a headline above them. It should start off with the Aleph and the Beth and the Gemel and the Daleth. There at the beginning, you'll see each of those stanzas. And every one of those verses, not in English, obviously, but in Hebrew, would begin with that same letter. Uh, that is just a style of writing. And what I want us to read through here tonight, because there's nothing more beautiful than just the reading of God's Word. I want us to read the first verse of each one of these sections together. And I want you to listen to the verbs there and the descriptions of what God's word is and what it means. Listen to the passion of the psalmist. 119.1 How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. The action there, the way of life is walking in the law of the Lord. How can a young man keep his way pure? We would ask ourselves that. By keeping it according to your word. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation by the way so we have a little bit of difference in that. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep or guard your word. 25, my soul cleaves to the dust, meaning I'm going to die. Revive me according to your word. What brings me back to life from the dust of death is your word. Verse 33, teach me a demand of God to teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. 41, may your loving kindness, that's, that's another wonderful, beautiful Hebrew word for mercy. Also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. And 49, remember the word or the promise to your servant in which you have made me hope. We think about that verse, we pause to think about if we ignore the word of God as disciples of Christ, we cannot possibly cling to the hope that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promised resurrection that we will have one day when he returns and brings back all those who have fallen asleep ahead of us or ahead of whoever's left and he returns to this earth and the dead are resurrected and all are judged and the sheep will be divided from the goats. My hope is the promise that I'm given in the word is that if I walk according to his statutes and his ways, then I will be with the sheep on that judgment day. We recently had a lesson in class that I know generated a lot of conversation about judgment day. And I'm going to tell you, I don't understand exactly what it's going to be like. I don't know what it's going to be like if I die ahead of that time and what am, what am I going to experience as far as time and, th and there's been all kinds of stuff made up about that. But I would tell you, I don't know. But what I do know is that if I have lived faithfully for God and I've been baptized into his son, Jesus Christ, whatever happens in the end, I'm going with the sheep. And that's all that matters because the alternative is not enticing. I want to go with the sheep. I don't really care what happens in between. I really don't care. I hope I'm here to see the glory of Christ, but I'm also fine if he just simply brings me back with him. But I'm like Paul. I'm ready to go anytime and be with Christ and do that. But that's hope that it gives me. 
In verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. The Lord never promises us a bed of roses just because we are obedient to him. Think about Paul. Think about the early Christians. Who had a life that was a bed of roses? Who lived in riches because of the word of God? Who dodged any persecution because they were a Christian? It's actually more frequently the other way around and really a way to purify and a way to train us in a way to, to cleanse our soul dealing with persecution and difficulty. In verse 73, your hands made me and fashioned me. I wouldn't know that if I didn't have the word of God. Give me understanding that I might learn from your commandments. That give me understanding. We can pray for that. Doesn't James tell us that when we lack wisdom, we ask God of it and he will give it to us? Studying God's word and understanding it is difficult, but it is not insurmountable. You can study and understand God's word, but it's going to take a little bit of work. It's going to take a little bit of study because you were not born in the first century. You don't know what it's like to live in that culture. You don't know what it's like to live in that religious environment of the New Testament. You certainly don't know what it's like to live in the ancient Near East days of Moses and David and Solomon and Joshua and Abraham. We don't know those worlds, so sometimes it takes a little bit of, of understanding. We don't speak the languages that the Bible is composed in the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament composed entirely in Greek. And even modern day Greeks don't speak the same Greek as was in that day. It's very difficult, but it, it's worth the effort and it's not something that's all that difficult. We have a library back here that's full of resources that are for you to use to help understand God's word. There are places online, some, that are worth looking at and, and reading and understanding. The staff is here, the elders are here, the Bible class teachers are here to help you understand that. But ask God for understanding, pray as you study his word. My soul languages for your visitation. I wait. Some translations, I hope. I'm in verse 81. I hope for your word. 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God's word is immovable. It's not going to be vacated by any action of men. I, I was talking to a group the other day. Everybody's stressed out because they don't hang the Ten Commandments on a courtroom wall. I'd rather them hang the Sermon on the Mount up there, to be quite honest with you. You know, that, that's where I would, what I would like for them to be. But no action of man, no matter what government it is, is going to be able to vacate or move the Word of God. The Word of God has endured kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and it will endure past any kingdom that is yet to come if the Lord does not come back. It is immovable. 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In our Wednesday night class, we just got through studying in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema Yisrael, the prayer that says, I'm going to speak about your words as I rise up and as I lay down, as I am going out and I am coming in. Our meditation should be on them all day. Can you say that I love the law of the Lord? Sometimes we tend to love it when it agrees with us, but when it tells us something we need to change or something we need to do that we hadn't been doing, that's when we don't love it, right? We, we, don't, we don't like it that much. When it tells me to love my enemy, that's, well, that's hard to do. Now, I can love, I can love Griff, but I don't know if I can love the enemy out there who's slapping me in the face or taking my job or, or, or is ridiculing me because of my Christianity or is uh, my neighbor who keeps uh, dumping trash over my fence, whatever that winds up being. That's the hard part. You think Jesus didn't have a hard life in what he had to deal with? 
We need to love his word. A familiar verse in 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me the way. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. I have done justice and righteousness in 121. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Your testimonies are wonderful in 129. Therefore, my soul observes them. In 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. How do I learn about the judgments and discernment of the Lord? I read his word. In 145, I cried out with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord. I will observe your statutes. In 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me. What does the psalmist cry out? For I do not forget your law. I haven't forgotten you, Lord. Don't forget me. Two more. 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. That makes me pause and think about, can you really not stand in awe of the word of God? Our God, in comparison to the false gods of the Canaanite world, of the Greco-Roman world, of the modern-day world, loves and cares about us. He is not a capricious God that just flirts with humanity and sometimes He cares about their needs and loves them and sometimes He punishes them just as, at a whim or He'll make up lies about them and sometimes He'll keep His word, sometimes they won't. A bunch of false gods whose own stories that have been made up by men show that they don't love and care about the people. The God is their enemy. But I stand in awe of God's word just because of its preservation. When people ask me, how come you trust in the word of God? I say, because it's been around for a long time and it has stood the test of time. And the evidence that we have today that supports the accuracy of the theological teachings of God's word is, is you can't get past it. It's, it, it's, it's a mountain of evidence to that. We're going to have a class about that in the spring on Wednesday nights. Looking forward to that. The last word, Tav, let me cry, in verse 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. We'll finish up in, in Hebrews chapter 4 if you want to be turning there in our final passage. I encourage you to go back and read the 119th Psalm. And just look at the beautiful way in which the psalmist honors the word of God and what it has to teach him. And I encourage you as you think about discipleship, we've talked about getting involved, we've talked about ministry, we talk about connections to the church, we talk about serving the community, but nothing replaces our connection to God through the truth that is in his word. My favorite Bible verse of what drives my life was not words in the Bible spoken by Jesus or by Paul. It was spoken by Pontius Pilate in John 18. What is truth? My entire mission in life is to find that out and hopefully share it with other people. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Find out the truth of God's word and be ready to share it. One of the visions of our eldership, and I'm so thankful for it, is to make this congregation increase its evangelistic effort in the community. I just got through hearing the three candidates to be elders speak to the elders and deacons and ministers in a meeting before this service. And one of them said, I look forward not to just taking care of the sheep that are in the corral, but finding more sheep to bring in the corral, to go out five miles, 10 miles, whatever it may wind up being. If we want to be mission minded, the mission is within a stone's throw of this building. It can be done, but you better learn it and be ready to share it with others. 
And that's a job that we need you to take on and to do. Tonight you may not be in a position to do that because you haven't put on Christ in baptism, that you haven't started down that path. And perhaps it's going to take more study of God's word for you to make that decision, and that's great. That's wonderful. You need to understand the covenant that you're entering into. You need to understand its blessings and its curses for obedience and for disobedience. You need to understand the obligation you're taking on. And I think about in Hebrews chapter 4, the context is the discussion of today. Today, honor God and do what he says. Do not like, be like those Israelites in the wilderness who kicked against the goads, who rebelled against God and did not get to enter into his rest. Be prepared today so that you may enter into his rest. And that is where we get the context for the off-quoted verses I'm about to read. For if Joshua had given them rest, talking about the Israelites entering into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Hebrew writer is talking about heaven. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his, speaking back to the seventh day after creation. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, not the promised land on earth, but the promised land of heaven, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience that Israel did. For the word of God, the word that judges whether we enter that rest or not, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, he's speaking here of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. He's, he's come to earth and now he's in heaven with God. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I, I encourage you tonight, if you are walking away from that throne of grace or you've never turned towards that throne of grace, don't leave here tonight not being a disciple of Christ. If you personally, there in your pew, need to think about making Bible study and the reading of God's word a priority in your life, I ask you to help ask you to pray and help God with that. If you'd like to understand how to study the Bible better, what resources there are out there, what a blessing it's be, grab one of the staff, grab one of these elders, grab the person next to you, grab your Bible teacher on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and talk to them about it. Do not leave that hole in your life that God has blessed us by having his words. You can pour in there and enrich your life and your discipleship to Christ. But if you've never come near to that, if you've never studied God's word, that's okay. That's okay. The time is yet, but today is the day. Just as the Hebrew writer told his audience, not tomorrow, because we don't know if tomorrow will come. Today is the day to learn more about what God's word has to say about the salvation or the condemnation of your soul. So don't be ashamed of that. There's no shame in that at all. But don't leave here tonight still going down that path. Come tonight and help us pray for you. Find one of us and help us study with you. 
We care about your soul. We want to be in heaven with you one day. We want you to be with the sheep on judgment day. If there is anything that we can do as a congregation to pray for you or help you, please do not hesitate as we come uh, and come as we stand and as we sing.